please be seated. Our sermon text today is taken from Matthew chapter 10, verse 40, through chapter 11, verse 19. You can also follow along in your pew Bibles, pages 815 and 816. Whoever receives you receives me, and whoever receives me receives him who sent me. The one who receives a prophet because he is a prophet will receive a prophet's reward. And the one who receives a righteous person because he is a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And whoever gives one of these little ones even a cup of cold water because he is a disciple, truly I say to you, he will by no means lose his reward. When Jesus had finished instructing his twelve disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. As they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written. Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But to what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, He has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, Look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Lord, the best uh, that I can do when I'm at the peak of my strength uh, is to draw a stick figure of you. And and our hearts, when they're at their best, uh, do not respond adequately to you. And... And on their own, our hearts won't sing with the kind of humility and wonder and love that you're worthy of. And, and so what we're asking now is that you would come and, and take us by the hand and take us by our hearts and that through us and for us, and upon us, you would do a, a greater work than we can imagine. That you would exceed us in every way. That you would exceed our expectations. That you would exceed our highest hopes of you and from you. We ask that you would do this uh, for those already your children. And we ask that you would also do this today in the lives of those who are not yet your children, that this might be the day of their salvation. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I am very grateful for uh, the Holy Spirit's uh, pastoral wisdom uh, in 
giving us a Matthew 11 right after Matthew 10. And, of course, she was, that's exactly what you'd expect after Matthew 10, right? Matthew 11. The Holy Spirit didn't put the chapter divisions in. That's done later. But I just want you to think about, I mean, I've been very touched this week as I've thought about the flow of thought uh, out of Matthew 10 into Matthew 11. I mean, Matthew 10 is hard, right? And Matthew 10 is an extended block of teaching from our Lord about uh, the cost of discipleship, uh, particularly with reference to uh, mission and ministry in Jesus' name. And you'll notice, if you think about it, and you may have already thought about it, that across the whole span of that chapter, all you have is Jesus' teaching. There's no indication that Matthew has recorded in Matthew 10 of how this teaching, which has many gracious places and also marries those gracious places with many difficulties, uh, and Matthew not once, not once in that chapter reports to us how this teaching landed on the disciples. Now, we can imagine, because we're disciples too, right? And it landed on us kind of hard. So when we get into Matthew 11, and the very next episode uh, in the organization and flow of Matthew's gospel is John the Baptist struggling in Herod's dungeon, well, I am greatly encouraged. And I'm greatly challenged at the same time. I'm encouraged because it means that my struggles uh, with the cost of discipleship, uh, you know, that I have good company in those struggles, that I'm not alone. John is struggling. There's just no way around it. He's doubting in the dungeon. Uh, So I'm encouraged to not be alone. You know, you reach the end of Matthew 10, you go, am I the only one who wants to run the other way? The answer is no. Because in the end, there was only one who kept going. Right? There's only one who kept going. There's only one who didn't shy away from the cause. And even he, even he, on the night before his crucifixion, asked his father, if there was any other way. So I'm encouraged. But I'm also challenged because of what Jesus does with John's suffering. And what he does with John's suffering is the same thing he does with our suffering. He pushes himself right to the front of it. And he proclaims who he is and the kind of king that he is. You could almost say that what Jesus does with the reality of John's suffering is he makes himself the center of it. And that, I understand why that would be offensive. And so this morning, uh, I want to think with you about three uh, aspects of how Jesus uh, proclaims his own identity. He stands in the middle of John's suffering and says, this is about me. Three aspects of the kind of king that he is and that he shows us in this chapter that I want to think about with you this morning. And uh, here are the headings. Jesus shows us that he is the king whose servants suffer. He is the king whose servants suffer. He is secondly the king who suffers as our servant. And then finally, he is the king that we cannot control. The king whose servants suffer, the king who suffers as our servant, and the king we can't control. And those all are connected to one another. So let's think first about how Jesus shows us that he is the king whose servants suffer. And, uh, and we need to start with John, because John is having, he's in Herod's dungeon. We know from chapter 4, uh, verse 23, uh, I believe it's 23, uh, verse 12, sorry, in chapter 4, that, that Herod arrested John. So since uh, the middle of chapter 4, John has been in Herod's dungeon, and we've seen, this, uh, we've seen just a lot of ministry from uh, Jesus between uh, that point and Uh, the present in Matthew 11. And what happens is that John now, it it, it seems that the news of Jesus's deeds uh, and the way that that Matthew describes it is the deeds of the Christ 
uh, have reached, news, news of those deeds has reached John in Herod's dungeon. I mean, just think about this. You're in Herod's dungeon. You're there because you stood for what is true and what is right. And now you're hearing news of Jesus' ministry. Probably his disciples who are visiting him, can uh, John's disciples can report to them what they've seen and heard of what Jesus has done across chapter 8. In chapter 9, so much ministry, remember? So many amazing things that Jesus has done. And John, in the dungeon, is looking at where he is and remembering who he was and is thinking about what Jesus has done. And he is having doubts. And he sends a question through his disciples to Jesus. And the question is, hey, are, are, are you the Messiah? Are you the one, we, the coming one? Or are we supposed to look for another? Did I get this wrong? And you can understand why John is asking his questions, can't you? You can understand why John is having doubts in the dungeon. I mean, first, look at his present experience. This is quite an intersection. On the one hand, there are the deeds of the Christ, evidence of the kingdom's power. On the other hand, he, as the, the one who baptized Jesus the one who is his cousin, the one about whom such mighty prophecies had been made by the angel of the Lord, he's in a dungeon. Now that's an amazing intersection. Triumph and vulnerability. Triumph and suffering. And at that intersection where John is, he's asking the question, hey, Did I get this wrong? (laughs) Does that not encourage you? If you were going to make the Bible up, again, if this were all a lie, if this were just the fabrication of men, friends, you would not include this episode. Do you see that? This is John you would have John saying, bring it on. He's not doing that. Again, I just, I, it is very important to me over and over again to point out to you the internal indicators of the trustworthiness of the Bible to you. Because you need to build your life on this book, and you can't if it's not trustworthy. And here's John at this intersection, and he's struggling. He's having trouble seeing Jesus' crown from Herod's dungeon. He's having trouble with that. It's even harder, by the way, to see Jesus' crown when he's on a cross. But we can relate, right? We can relate to John's struggle. I mean, you think about not just his present experience, but think about his past experience. Think about what John grew up with, the stories that his parents uh, told him, Elizabeth and Zechariah. What, what a childhood you had as John the Baptist. Hey, you know why we had you? Because your father in the priestly rotation ended up going into the temple one day and an angel appeared and told him, that you would be great, that not only that your mother would be pregnant with you, and that you would be great in the Lord, that you would be filled with the Holy Spirit from the day you were conceived in your mother's womb, and that you would go before the Lord to prepare His people for His arrival, and you would come in the spirit and power of Elijah. John, my little three-year-old John, that's what God said about you. Can you imagine growing up with that? And then, when he grows up, and his public ministry begins, and he's at the River Jordan, remember how John preached? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, because you're not ready. Right? Uh, The axe is already laid to the root of the tree. There's one coming after me who is mightier than me. He is so much more glorious than me. I am not worthy to carry his sandals. And he's got a winnowing fork in his hand. And he's going to to winnow the wheat. He's going to clear his threshing 
floor and he's going to burn, he's going to gather the wheat into the barns and he's going to burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And then Jesus shows up. See, John, everything that John had been told, that John believed from his youth, was that God's kingdom was going to come, and he believed it. And when God's kingdom came, according to the Old Testament prophecies, when God showed up, he would judge his enemies, and he would bless his people. And so that's what John preached. And Jesus comes up and says, you need to baptize me too. And John says, what are you talking about? You should be baptizing me. And Jesus says, this is what we have to do to fulfill all righteousness. John, you can imagine him saying, fulfill all righteousness? Here's how we fulfill all righteousness. Go get the bad guys. And Jesus says, no, baptize me. And then John hears the Father proclaiming from heaven who his Son is. Right? Now, all of this is part of John's experience. You can understand why he would be having doubts and some confusion in the dungeon of Herod, can't you? But notice something about John that that connects John with our lives. See, John's assumption is this that at the heart of John's struggle is this, that the kingdom of God's presence and the presence of suffering for the righteous uh, don't belong together. John is saying, if the kingdom, and, and what he, his understanding is, if God has come, and, which he believed that he had in the person of Jesus, then that must mean not that the righteous will suffer, but that the wicked, because that's what the whole story of history has been but that the wicked will now suffer under God's judgment. And John is saying uh, that, John is essentially showing us that he believes that the kingdom cannot simultaneously be triumphantly present and vulnerably present at the same time. Now we get that, don't we? I mean, isn't that at the heart of so many of our own struggles? How could the kingdom be triumphantly present and yet vulnerably present? That is the cross's story. Triumph and vulnerability. And not in tension with one another. Triumph through vulnerability. Now, if that sounds foolish to you, it should. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. But notice what John has done. He has struggled with this collision. He has said that these two things can't be true. The kingdom can't be triumphantly present and vulnerably present. But you know, he should have... There was a clue in Jesus' baptism, right? There was a clue that Jesus submitted himself to baptism and said, this is how we fulfill our righteousness. That I, the, the one who's promised to come, that I, the judge, will put myself and mark myself as being under the requirements of God's law. That I, the judge, am putting myself on a trajectory to be judged. What Jesus is saying in his baptism that John should have learned and that he now learns again in the dungeon is that the real story is much bigger than he thought. But notice what John has done, friends. This is very important. John's had doubts, and what has he done with them? Is this practical? Do you have doubts? Look at what John has done with them. Even before we get to Jesus' answer, which is amazing. But even before we get to Jesus' answer, here's what I want you to see pastorally about what John does with his doubts. First of all, you have a faithful man who has doubts. But notice what he does with them. He brings them to Jesus. He could have sat in his cell in Herod's dungeon and just seethed. But what he does is he sends his doubts to Jesus And we all do one of two things with our doubts. You are either, if you are experiencing doubts or have experienced doubts, there's only two things that you can do with doubts. Only two. And we always choose one or the other. Either you are going to 
want to be liberated from your doubts by Jesus, which is what John did, or you're going to seek to be liberated from Jesus by your doubts. So remember that the next time. John gets it right. John is seeking to be liberated from his doubts by Jesus, and so he sends his doubts to Jesus. And look at how Jesus responds. It's remarkable. He, he, his response to John really is in two parts. First, it's to John, and then it's also he talks about John to the crowds. Look, look, at, look at what Jesus doesn't do. He doesn't bring the hammer down on John. <laughs> it's so encouraging. He doesn't say, John, you dolt. John, you unbeliever. Jesus understands that the way he's brought the kingdom is not simple. It wasn't simple for him. I mean, honestly, right? Triumph through weakness, not just triumph in spite of weakness, but triumph by weakness, life by death, right? Vindication by condemnation. Do you guys have that down? Oh, Jesus is so kind, right? He doesn't condemn John. He doesn't criticize him. He doesn't, and, and, and yet he also, he doesn't agree with John that his, this is maybe what is most shocking. He doesn't agree with John that his imprisonment is wrong. And he doesn't promise him release. This, this one who has cleansed lepers and raised the dead, he doesn't break John out of the jailhouse. And he doesn't tell John to expect that. That's amazing, what, jo- what Jesus does do is he points John to the proof of his Messiahship. He tells him to think through the details. He says, take hold of your heart by thinking through the facts. Oh, friends. Friends. Martin Lloyd-Jones was exactly right. The central problem in the Christian life is that we spend too much time listening to ourselves and not enough time talking to ourselves. You are always, you think my sermons are long? Do you realize you're sitting under your own preaching every waking hour through the week? It's just usually not out loud. It's in your head. You are preaching to yourself all the time. And it is so often, right, the thing we are preaching to ourselves, if we don't take hold of ourselves, is a false gospel. And so Jesus is telling John, think through the details, Take hold of your heart. Take hold of your heart and think through the details. He tells John's disciples, go tell him what you've seen and what you've heard. The the blind receive their sight. The lepers are being cleansed, right? The deaf receive their hearing. The dead are being brought back to life. The poor are having the gospel preach them. Those are all messianic uh, expectations raised by the by the Old Testament, and and John is being told by Jesus, think it through, match up what's happening with God's promises. He's driving John back to God's word. What do you think God wants to do, my friend, when you struggle? Where does he want to drive you? Not to the television. God is not wanting to drive you to the internet. He's not wanting to drive you to the refrigerator. He's not wanting to drive you so you can just gossip with a Christian friend about how God is not holding you up. You realize that we do that sometimes? We gossip about God in his presence without praying, without looking at his promises. Jesus is doing for John what he means to do for us, drives John to the word. Think about it. And then he does something even more remarkable. He says, in verse 6, he says, Blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Not scandalized, literally, not scandalized by me. What what do you mean? I mean, think about it. Does this seem like good pastoral bedside manner? John's in prison, and he says, Don't be offended by me. What Jesus is doing is he's pushing him, like I said at the beginning, he's, he's making himself the central issue in John's suffering. Don't be offended by me. And if you're not offended by me, you will be blessed. He sends, I love verse 6, because what Jesus does is he sends, he sends uh, John's disciples back to John with uh, an exhortation to, to drive him back to the word. 
think it through. In light of God's promises, don't judge God's don't judge God's promises by His providence, like Thomas Manton says, but judge His providence by His promises. Think it through, and then John, there's also this personal summons: Don't be offended, not by it, like the kingdom, the way this is working, but by me. In other words, Jesus is saying, "I am sovereign over this. I'm in charge of your suffering." Now that is a powerful powerful challenge to us. And what Jesus is essentially saying to John is, don't let go of me in your suffering. Don't let go of me in your suffering. And we know that that exhortation is ultimately grounded in the reality of the cross that we lay hold of, which is the reason we are not to let go of Jesus in our suffering is because he did not let go of us in his The only way you and I can persevere, the only way that John can persevere is if the one who is telling him not to let go is one who himself, much more deeply and under much greater pressure and in much greater tension, never let go of John. And that's what Jesus is heading toward. He says this in the shadow of his own cross. And friends, we now know what he was willing to do and how tightly he held on. He's a king whose servants suffer. And that's offensive. So much of why the world plays games in the shadow of the cross is because of that very point. I mean, look at verses 16 through 19. Jesus compares this generation to a bunch of kids who are gaming the kingdom. I mean, friends, watch the news, but for not very long, okay? And what the world does is play games in the shadow of the cross. And Jesus isn't saying to John that this is a game. And Jesus is saying that, that John needs to understand that there is, there is a, an authority and a power and a control that goes with Jesus' kingship here. And notice what Jesus says to the crowds about John. He says that John is the great, there's no greater human being who has ever lived. Now think about that. John's in a dungeon. The crowd has heard how Jesus has responded to John's disciples. And Jesus is saying, you know that guy in the dungeon? Yeah, that guy. No one in the history of the world has ever been greater than him. Now, the implication of that is, again, that when the kingdom is present in triumph, it is also present in vulnerability and weakness. And that weakness and suffering do not undermine the triumphant presence of the character now of the kingdom. And that's true in your life, too. And notice how Jesus ups the ante with us. John is at the top of the peak of humanity. But then Jesus says, the least one in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John. My Christian brother and sister, that's God's evaluation of you in your suffering. That's God's promise. That is Jesus's blood-brought promise about your identity, whether or not you feel it. It has nothing to do with your feelings and everything to do with Jesus' promise. Drive you back to the Word. Drive you back to the Word in your suffering. The world will look at you and your suffering and say, you're an idiot. You're a loser. You made mistakes. You deserve this. What did you do to earn this suffering? And Jesus says, the least of my people is greater than John, greater than every human being who's ever lived. (laughs) Triumphantly present in the midst of weakness. Right? We're in the shadow of the cross, friends. We're in the shadow of a king who himself 
is going to go to suffer as our servant. And we need to hear what John did. Friends, we need to hear this in our lives. That Jesus is saying to John what he says to us. That dungeon you're in is much smaller than you think. That darkness that you find yourself in is much weaker than you think then it's trying to lead you to believe. And the big story that God is unfolding is much bigger than you've dreamed and much better than you've dreamed. And the second part of that story of Jesus' kingship is that he is the king who not only calls his servants to suffer, but he is the king who suffers as our servant. Right? The reason we don't let go of him in our suffering is not just because he's a great king who's called us to suffer, but underneath that is this reality that he has not let go of us in, in his. So first, look at verse 10. Verse 10 is Jesus announcing something very shocking to us about the kind of king that he is. Jesus, in, in talking about John's identity, is really revealing his own. He is saying that he is the king who has come. Verse 10. Now, this is a little technical, so I need you to look very carefully at your Bibles. And we're going to go to Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, in a moment. In a moment. And Malachi, this is so easy, Right? Because Malachi is just one book to the left. It's the last book in the Old Testament. So no one's going to get Bible whiplash this morning, okay? It's going to be really easy. But look at verse 10. Now the crowd thinks that Jesus is talking about John, and Jesus is talking about John, and we think Jesus is talking about John, and that's true. But Jesus isn't only talking about John. So verse 10, he's saying who John is, and he says, this is he of whom it is written. And then he quotes... Malachi chapter 3, verse 1. Now notice what he does here. In, here in Matthew 11, this is how the verse reads. Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Now notice this. There are three persons in that verse that Jesus quotes. I, who is the Lord, my messenger, Number two, and that's who Jesus says John is. He's Elijah who is to come, he says uh, down in verse 14. So there's I, who is the Lord, my messenger, number two, that's John, and then there's this person, you. You see that? Now, turn with me to Malachi 3.1. So go to the left. Page 802 in your pew Bible. Last book in the Old Testament. The Lord is speaking. He says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Now, do you notice what Jesus has done with this verse? In Malachi... Three, there are only two figures, the Lord of hosts and the messenger. Now, in Matthew 11, turn back to Matthew 11, Jesus has read himself into this verse. He's trinitized it. And he is saying that he is the you before whom the messenger goes which means that he is also the Lord of hosts in Malachi 3.1. This is one of the most compelling and powerful claims of deity that Jesus makes about himself in the entire New Testament. Jesus is saying that he is the Lord of hosts who has come. That John is the messenger who the Lord of hosts said would go before him in Malachi 3.1 in the spirit and power of Elijah. And that Jesus standing in front of them, if John is that messenger, then that means that Jesus is the Lord of hosts. And that is a staggering claim. But it's even more staggering when we see what he claims next in verse 12. Because in verse 12, he says this about the kingdom. He says, from the days of John the Baptist until now, 
The kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. Now, okay, that, that should shock us. I mean, Jesus is, there's two things to what Jesus is saying in, uh, in the second half of the chapter. He's saying, number one, I'm the king who has come. I'm, I'm the king at the center of the kingdom. And, and that would be radical enough as it is, okay? For a Jew with the vision of God that they had to see a pagan could say that. A Greek, a Greek could say that and no one would be nonplussed because, because in Greek mythology, right, the gods often appeared as human beings. No, no, no in Hebrew culture or with the Old Testament. That would have been the most offensive thing possible. And Jesus is claiming to be the incarnate Lord of hosts. But beyond that, he is now telling us in verse 12 that he, as the king of the kingdom, has come to suffer. That the nature of his kingdom is going to be triumphed through suffering. Look at verse 12. It is absolutely shocking. For from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence and the violent take it by force. Okay, according to Jesus in verse 12, what is the kingdom of heaven like? Well, it's a kingdom which means it's going to be triumphant, right? It's going to be the assertion of God's rule. And we would expect that to be opposed, right? The kingdom of heaven has suffered violence. John is an example of how the world's going to respond to the kingdom of heaven, to God's rule. It's going to be opposed by the world. But then notice the next phrase, which is even more shocking. And the violent take it by force. You see what Jesus is saying is, I'm the king. And let me tell you the nature of my kingdom so you understand it. With John in prison and me anticipating my cross, the nature of my kingdom is this. It's going to be opposed and it's going to look like it's overcome. The violent take it by force. It looks like the kingdom of heaven is going to be a victim, doesn't it? But this is the kingdom of heaven. Wait, this is the kingdom of heaven. You're the Lord of hosts. You're the one who has limitless hosts of angels at your disposal. You are the Lord who is almighty. And you're saying that when your kingdom comes, do you feel the tension here? When your kingdom comes, it is going to be opposed and you're going to let people get away with that? And not only is it going to be opposed, but it's going to look like they they not only get away with opposing you, but that they actually succeed in overcoming you. Oh, that is shocking. Can't you see that Jesus is giving us not just the interpretation of John's suffering, but he's anticipating where his own ministry is headed? The kingdom will be triumphantly present and vulnerably present at the same time. The kingdom's triumph will be secured through weakness. You see, Jesus didn't disagree with John's vision of the one who was mightier than he. Jesus doesn't, never disagreed that the axe would be laid to the root of the tree. Jesus never dis, already. Jesus never disagreed that, that when the king came, he would have a winnowing fork in his hand and that he would clear the threshing floor and that he would bring the wheat into the barn and burn the chaff. That, Jesus never disavowed John's preaching. The question was, how was that vision going to be fulfilled? And this is the amazing thing about God's kingdom and the kind of king that Jesus is. And, and this is the DNA of the Christian life. Do you know how Jesus ultimately fulfilled those prophecies? He began to fulfill them by giving himself to be the tree at whose root the acts of God's judgment was laid. He gave himself to be winnowed like chaff when he was the only fruitful life that had ever been lived. He gave himself to be baptized with the fire of God's judgment on the cross. See, Jesus doesn't disagree with John. Jesus just knows the story is far bigger and far better than John ever realized, which is that the king himself would come to suffer as the substitute for his servants. Doesn't the gospel just blow you away? 
I just find this endlessly thrilling. And, and even when it's frightening, it is so encouraging. How much must Jesus love his people? How patient must God be? How good must God be that he, when he comes to the earth, would bring a sword first down upon himself? That when he comes to judge, he comes first to be judged in the place of his people. Does this sound foolish to you? Well, it ought to. But that doesn't mean it's not true. In fact, your hearts resonate with it. Because you and I both know that we deserve judgment and we cannot stand under it. You and I both know that in deep in our heart of hearts, I don't care what you say to me, I know you know it's true in your conscience because God made your conscience. You know that you owe God everything and that you owe him a life of fruitfulness and that you haven't given him that life. And so when the gospel comes in and we see that it is God himself who comes to fulfill the life that you and I were required by God and that he deserved to have from us of faith and obedience, that God himself has to come. This greatest of all surprises in the history of the universe, that God himself would come to fulfill that requirement of his own law and then he would fulfill it all the way to the end and stand between us and his judgment against our sins. Friends, you know that the things you worry about at three o'clock in the morning in your heart are answered by the gospel. So don't play games with him in the shadow of the cross. There's no time for games. Jesus was not playing games on the cross. If this sounds foolish, it ought to, because the foolishness of God is wiser than men and the weakness of God is stronger than men. What kind of a king? What kind of a king is this? And what kind of a king is it who would be triumphantly present and vulnerably present at the same time? What kind of a king is that? Well, it's a king on a cross, which means that it's a king that we cannot control. And that's our last point. The king on the cross is the king we can't control. Here's what's amazing about the gospel, yet another amazing thing. Jesus is the servant of the world. The cross shows us that, and Jesus is announcing this to us in chapter 11, that Jesus is the servant of the world without having the world as his master. He's the servant of all while remaining the master of all. You see, that's what makes the world so mad about him in verses 16 through 19 when Jesus says, hey, you want to know how the world responds to me and how the world responds to John? The world says, hey, 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 you are not dancing to my tune. Jesus, you're not doing what I want you to do, so I'm not going to pay attention to you. When I played my flute for you, you didn't share my joys. And when I cried, you didn't cry. You didn't do what I wanted you to do. So I'm done with you. But for all that, Jesus was not done with the world. (laughs) Amazing? I mean, even in the moment of submitting to the world as the servant of the world on the cross, and it looked like he was defeated, in submitting to the world... And its rejection on the cross, what was really happening, we know from Philippians 2, is that Jesus, in his power, was bringing the entire cosmos in submission to himself. Because one day, we know from Philippians 2, every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father, whether those knees are in heaven or on the earth or under the earth, whether they are believers or unbelievers, in the end, the end of every life is the same, confessing Jesus Christ as Lord. That doesn't mean that everyone will be saved. 
but it does mean that even those who are under God's judgment for eternity will be denied the opportunity to continue to deny Jesus. There are no games in the shadow of the cross. You and I have no idea how long we're going to live on this side of our graves. And in the face of a king of such goodness, isn't it good news to hear that we can't control him? See, because if Jesus is the servant of all, and yet he's the master of all, so he doesn't give up his kingship by being the servant of all, then that means that all of his dealings with us are by grace. That means we can't manipulate him by leaving, leading what we think of as a good life. And that if we, you know, Jesus is not a vending machine. He's, he's not going to interact with us according to, uh, to our input. Okay, as though we could manipulate him. If I lead a better life, or if I start going to church, or if I start praying, then that means he's got to give me good out of that vending machine because I'm giving good to him. I'm putting good in. He should be giving me good out. Friends, if all the dealings are by grace, that means I don't get that argument anymore. That God isn't going to be used. He's a king we can't control. We can't manipulate him. Everything is by grace. This is offensive. It's offensive to our pride. We want God to serve us. When we play a flute, we want him to dance for us. When we sing a dirge, we want him to mourn with us. And instead, we should rejoice with what he rejoices in and weep over what he weeps. The cross proves that we're upside down. I think that the two biggest problems in the Christian life have to do with suffering. Ours and Jesus's. Ours is a problem because it's hard and it's deep. Ours is a problem because so often in our present pains and losses, the music of the gospel gets drowned out and we lose sight of, we're there in the dungeon, right? We lose sight of what is already ours in Christ. We lose sight of the wonder that the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than all. That's a struggle. But, you know, it's Jesus' suffering that creates a much bigger problem for us. And I say problem in the sense that it challenges us. First, do you know what the implication? Jesus' willingness to suffer for me, all as a matter of his grace, Jesus' willingness to give himself in my place, to this master of all, to be the servant of all, for, for him to do that, that means that the fact that he held nothing back from me and gave everything for me means that I have no freedom to impose limitations on what he might ask me to give for him. Grace is an offense, not just because it denies us the opportunity to earn our salvation, but grace is also offensive because it means that to relate to this king means there are no limits, none And it means, that, it means that we are so greatly loved, that Jesus was willing to suffer for us, friends, means that we are so greatly loved that he held on to us so tightly in his own suffering that no matter where I am in the experience of suffering or sacrifice for him, that, that because I have been loved with an unbreakable and with a limitless love, that means that, that I have nothing to lose in my suffering. And that means that I have no permission to let go of him in mine. I am not to be offended by him in my suffering. I am to worship him. I am to praise him. I'm not to shrink back from him. I'm to lay hold of him. Now, this is sobering. And it's all done in the shadow of the cross. You see, there are two ways to live in the shadow of the cross. You can, you can either try to play games with Jesus, but wisdom will be justified by her deeds, friends. In the end, you will see that that was foolish play. Or you can take him seriously. 
and present your, your whole life to him as a living sacrifice. See, this is why I think ultimately that Jesus can bring the kingdom in both power and vulnerability at the same time. Because in that overlap of things is the possibility of mercy. You see, if, if God only came when he came as the Lord of hosts in power alone, friends, then there would be no room for faith. The age of mercy would be over, which it will be one day. At the earlier of our deaths or the return of the Lord, the age of mercy is going to be over. But because God has come in this way that makes him vulnerable to criticism, that makes him vulnerable to misunderstanding, that makes it possible for his servants to suffer, that makes it possible for people to still play games in the shadow of the cross, because he's come with vulnerability, that means that this gap that feels to us like an indictment of Jesus is actually worthy of praise because it means that he's the God of mercy And it means that though we've rejected him, he is still not rejecting us. And so, friends, what I call you to do, whether you are a Christian or a non-Christian, is to to take up Jesus' invitation at the beginning, excuse me, at the end of this chapter. It is the invitation that that, that is issued by a king that we cannot control, the king who goes to the cross. And that king says, come to me right? It's all about him. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Blessed is the one who is not offended by him, and he who has ears to hear, she who has ears to hear, let them hear. Let's pray. Lord, the harvest is plentiful and the laborers are few. Please send out laborers into your harvest and grant that we would go as those who have the assurance of your blessing and are not offended by you. We pray in your name. Amen.